Thank you for joining us here at Celebration Church, where we celebrate God, celebrate people, and celebrate life. We hope you enjoy today's message. I have a message this morning uh, entitled Mangled Christianity. Um, And the heart and the goal of this morning is that we would understand that if we get Christianity and we mangle it up, uh, to be mangled is destroy or severely damage by tearing or crushing. Uh, when I was 11 years old, my dad mangled his hand because he got it caught in a lifter on the back of a large truck and it mangled it up. It mangled it up to such a degree that he wrapped it up, he went to the hospital, they tried to get him to sit down and he opened it and allowed blood to squirt out everywhere until they would let him in straight through. That kind of mangled. The kind of mangled that if you type in the word mangled in Google Images, it's the top 50 images right there. Um, and I think often, there's a few young adult boys over there Googling mangled right now, enjoying it together. Justin, that's good. I hope you're looking at mangled. No, no judgment. I told you to do it. Um, so... Um, I want to look at some scriptures um, and lay a bit of a foundation this morning um, with a thought that uh, I mentioned it last week, the whole thought of post-popular scriptures, that often we grab a verse, we mangle it up to such a degree that we uh, establish a behavior, a way of living. We even make it right and say everyone else is wrong without looking a little bit further post what is popular or quotable and getting the actual heart of something. So I'll spend half my time laying that foundation looking at three scriptures, then I'll spend the other half of my time looking at three really mangled things um, that I feel like as a church we could restore um, to being non-mangled and make it a little bit more effective. I often find myself working on things like last week, faulty foundations or mangled beliefs, not because I'm a glass half full person, uh, I'm not, um, but because I think I am aware that no amount of good deeds to cover up bad deeds will make you a good person. That there is an art in returning to the most pure, most effective, most um, faithful version of being a follower of Jesus. So I find myself often not um, being like, oh, Joel, you're really good at these five things, but looking at the things that in five years or 10 years' time will be outworked in Jeremiah and Ellie's life and be outworked in my parenting. So maybe, and I don't think that's because I'm worried or fearful, maybe, but because I've seen bad examples of some things, so I am hesitant and intentional with making changes now so that when my kids leave home, I still love my wife and making intentional decisions now to invest in a babysitter so I don't need to invest in a divorce lawyer. Intentionality now so that further along, so the reason why I want to talk about mangled Christianity, I have no idea what we're doing next week, Pastor Nat. You'll be away celebrating your anniversary. If you have any suggestions of what you would like the message to be, please email uh, opinions at celebrationchurch.com.au um, and we'll, we'll file them away in the filing cabinet, also known as a rubbish bin. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> no, but, but God's got a plan even if I don't know what it is yet, so I don't, we don't need to vote on it. It's okay. Jesus will have his way still. Um, and, and I think, like, at, at the core of me, I think unaddressed bad things are naughty. Um, and it doesn't matter how long, <laughs> the word naughty should be spoken about more in church. Um, <laughs> naughty. Um, said it with that accent as well. Um, but it, it, it results, a lot of things are avoidable if we'll realize uh, 
how close we are to the edge of a cliff and take steps back and make some intentionality with our boundaries so that we don't slip off into some things. So we're going to take a look at some popular scriptures, only three. I was going to do Leviticus and talk about tattoos in church, but I feel like that's a waste of time. Um, So we're going to look at three scriptures and then we'll get into this thing. So let me pray and then Pastor Nat can go have a rest somewhere and he's coming back because we're kicking it old school with some worship at the end of the service. Who reckons he should go behind the curtain and come out? So I'm not going to move um, because Ryan struggles to move the camera. I watched uh, the YouTube last week. Where he like drops the camera and moves it around. It's like he's shocked when someone moves. You, oh, oh, oh my gosh. Um, but see these bulkheads here? The bulkheads used to be um, rooms. Pastor James's office, I think, was in that one. There was accounts. Imagine just the pastors coming out of a door. And you know that they're late for worship. They've been watching YouTube or Googling Mangled uh, in their offices and they come out. So maybe you could hide behind the curtain. Um, who reckons we should bring the crow's nest back? Does anyone remember the crow's? There's a little platform up there that youth used to go and kiss in on a Friday night. Um, but we removed that because it was naughty. Okay, let me pray for us. Uh, and for the production team, I'd love to welcome all of our podcast listeners right now. Everything before this moment doesn't count. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic service on mangled Christianity. Let me pray for us and we'll get into this thing because maybe you don't need Jesus, but I definitely do. So do you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here. The church is not supposed to happen without you. We thank you that you are interested in every moment of today. You're interested in every heart. You're interested in every disappointment, every storm that seems to be raging, every distraction that has taken our eyes off you. You are mindful of us. Uh, And not because you are desperate for us to do something for you, but because you are in love. With your sons and your daughters, you care. You deeply deeply care. You could have done your plan many ways. You could have done it without adopting us in. You could have done it without caring for us, but you chose to adopt us into your family. You chose to restore us. You chose to befriend us. You chose to co-partner with us. And I just thank you this morning that every single person in this place, every single person listening has your attention And that you want to speak to them, you want to empower them, you want to encourage them, you want to demangle mangled parts, (laughs) you want to fix faulty foundations, you don't want them to feel like they've got to do 10 good things to cover up one thing that you just want to address and fix and heal and restore. They need to do five good things to cover up a shame of a mistake or history or addiction or a predisposition or a disappointment, you are interested in all of our heart, you're interested in all of our mind, you're interested in all of us. So I pray as we come around your word right now that uh, you speak to our hearts, that it'd be less noise and more you. So we open our hearts to you, we make ourselves available to you, we are not ready to put up our guard to you, We are not ready to harden our hearts to you. We are not ready to fight you with our thinking and our levels of understanding. We are open to becoming more like you, Jesus, and ultimately more like the person you've called us to be. So help us this morning 
May everything else fade. And may we be continued to be restored, continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Nat. You may be seated. I want to quickly, hopefully quickly, look at three scriptures, uh, verses, and then I want to demangle them. Is that okay? John 3, verse 16, the most Googled scripture of 2014, because someone wrote it on their face in a sporting game. Who loves sports? Interesting. Up, up the Broncos. I don't know what that team is, what sport they play. I don't know where they're from, um, but I've heard it on people. I've heard people say that. Uh, go the Panthers. That's another one, isn't it? They're all abstract animals, aren't they? Why are they any good animals like Labradors um, or um, those giant guinea pigs? What are they called? Cap Capu Capuas Capu. They're like guinea pigs are the size of medium dogs. Um, Check it out. Google it. I encourage you boys over there, Google it right now. Type in big guinea pig and you'll get what you need from church this morning. Um, <laughs> can't remember why we're talking about sports, but that's okay. John 3 verse 16 says, ah, oh, now I remember, most quoted 2014. Get it, get it, I got it. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. This scripture shows us that God's love causes him to give, that um, he gives his son with the hope, and the word is hope there, um, because he gave his son for the entire world, not just for those that that he knew would choose to respond to him. He gave his son out of hope to restore all of humanity to himself, to give people a bridge over the canyon or a door into the house. He gave, he loved so much that it caused him to give. But once we grab that scripture, we can understand those basic things about God. But until we move on to something that is post-popular, until we make a decision not to grab something quotable and cool and smoking and be like, yeah, until we're willing to move past what is popular and discover power, we can um, mangle things up. Uh, Verse 17 says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This shows us that the world was not in need and is not in need of condemnation, but rather in need of saving. So if we grab verse uh, 16 here and say, yes, God so loved the world that he gave, so we need to tell everyone how much God gave and how much they need to respond to him because he didn't just give for the sake of giving and we should feel very bad about how much he had to give because of how much he loved us and we spend our time condemning arguments or ideas or opinions when verse 17 tells us to not do that because that is not the example that was set for us. Because the world is in is not in need of condemnation, the world is in need of saving. So if we grab a verse and we twist it into what we think, the word condemn means here to judge right or wrong, to decide or to take aside. For God did not send his son in the world to judge it, to say that it was right or wrong to decide or take a side, but to save it. And the word save simply means here, sozo, to heal or to make completely whole. 
So we need to understand God's intention for the world was not to send his son to be like, this is the perfect example. Now look at him hang on the cross. Feel bad about yourself. His goal was the world was already condemned. It was already right and wrong. But his goal was to heal, to save and make it whole. So my challenge before we go any deeper and drown in this point, as believers, we must learn how to save, not simply condemn. The art of holding back judgment to make whole rather than make a fight. We will find ourselves wasting time if we spend all our time destroying someone's argument, lifestyle, belief, ideas or opinions rather than taking a big breath in and letting them taste heaven. Letting them taste the kind of heaven that caused Jesus to live on this earth and die for this earth. So, we can see quite easily that if we take verse 16 alone, we can get mangled and we can result in a belief that God loves so much that He gave and He did it so that we all felt really bad, so that we gave our life to Him and then we'd stop feeling as, well no, we continued feeling bad every time we did something bad because that would cause another nail or cause another issue or cause Him having to come in the first place. We can get really mangled up because... We miss the point. And the point is that yes, he loved and yes, he gave, but his whole mission was to take us somewhere and to restore something rather than just stop us from being naughty. (laughs) So hopefully it results in a lack of desire to fight things of this earth and instead a a, a hunger to fight things that are unseen. Ephesians 4, next scripture, this laying a foundation, this really has nothing to do with my message at all. James 4 verse 8, come, or verse 8a, you know that the preacher is really working hard when they break a verse down into A and B, like they are working, A, B, C, D, they split it up into words and they're like wept, they don't even say Jesus wept, they get the smallest verse and they're like point B, Um, but James 4 verse 8a is often quoted, come near to God and he will come near you or draw near to God and he will draw near to you, this gives us an image that God will come close almost step for step, if I draw close to God then he will definitely draw close to me. Step by step, we will get closer to each other. This is a promise from God. But if we go to James 4, verse 8b and verse 9, we get this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. I don't know about you, but church just got sad. What is so easily come near to God and He will come near to you is this thought that no matter what is going on, if I just take a step towards Jesus, then He has to take a step towards me and we are going to meet in the middle of the beach like a rom-com with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore that I'm, I'm forcing Him to run. Like, and we miss the truth of this scripture, of the verse, what it actually means, what the chapter broadly means, and then what James itself means. The question is not, will God draw close to us? The question is, why are we far away from Him? The issue of 
Grieving and mourning and wailing and turning laughter into mourning and joy into gloom is to address the issue and the seriousness of don't wander away. (laughs) How do we get far enough that we needed to draw near? It is owning our wandering instead of treating our wandering as lighthearted or a normal part of life because we got too busy for him. And even verse 10 continues encouraging us to submit to God and then he will exalt us. But if we just grab the thought, if I draw close to God, he will draw close to me and not own our geographical location in our relationship, we will miss the truth and the ownership that will stop us from wandering away next time. So we move past the popular to get power. We humble ourselves uh, rather than thinking that it's two people meeting in the middle on the beach. We humble ourselves and we grieve and we mourn and we turn our laughter and we turn our joy into, into mourning and gloom. So we can see very easily how verse 9 out of context could result that we do whatever we want and draw close to God and He will meet us halfway. When instead, when we do whatever we want, we must be aware of how much that has separated us from God, that God did not take a step back, that we ran. And now we have to be mindful, just as the young son that spent all of his inheritance, that yes, the Father will run towards us. But man, we need to own what we did. Last little verse before we actually get into this thing. Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Jeremiah, my son's name is Jeremiah. It is not because of Jeremiah in the Bible. Jeremiah was not a fantastic prophet. He was sad and that is not what I named my son after. Alex named our son after the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Jem in there, but she didn't want to call him Jeremy. No offense if your name is Jeremy, but no son of mine will be called Jeremy. Um, (laughs) Uh, you can say no offense and then say whatever you want Um, but Jeremiah 29 verse 11 often the most quoted scripture or the most looked up scripture on you version each year for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord we pretty much ignore that first sentence pay no attention to it it's leading up to a really important part plans to prosper you oh hot damn not to harm you that's good plans to give you a hope and a future. This gives us a picture that God has great plans for us. Prosper, no harm, hope, future. It shows us that we should be choosing to believe His plan. But then if we go on to verse 12, then you will call on me, come, pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This is a whole lot less about what God wants and a whole lot more about what we should do. To come, call, pray, seek, find, seek with all of our heart. Find when we seek with all of our heart. This gives us a post-popular view of this scripture and moves us into what wider Jeremiah 29 is talking about and what wider was happening in the Old Testament, in the history of God's people. And it gives us an understanding of something a little bit deeper than God has a hope and a future for you. And then even when we take that zoom out, we can zoom back in. If we can go back to the verse, I don't know if it's still on the screen, yes. For I know the plans I have for you. And we stop skipping over the probably the most important part of that verse. The God is well aware of the goodness that he has for you, but it implies that we are not aware of it. That it would require us to call on him, to come, to pray, to seek, and to find him, to learn his heart. 
because it is not simply good enough for God to be aware of his great plans for us. But in Jeremiah 29, as they're going through some trials and some tests, he wants to remind people that he has something that they need and they must call, come, pray, seek and find it. You can see quite easily how we can get mangled if we believe verse 11 alone, that we could result quite likely in that God's plans don't involve us moving. And there are little to no plans that God has outworked in Scripture and outworked in humanity that don't involve His people moving. It is not a simple requirement that God knows how many great things He has for you. It is a response in our hearts to then move towards Him and understand that it is more than just some pop thing that we quote. It is something that draws us to respond to call or back in James. It draws us to humble ourselves before Him. It calls us to have mourning or verse John 3 verse 16 and 17, it calls us to realize that he's not condemning us, but he's trying to make us whole. That the whole thing of when we just grab popular things and quote them, misses out on their power. So now, let me preach. And you can do that with pretty much every popular verse that is misquoted. Um, You can grab 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and quote it as many weddings as you want, but it's not what it's talking about. So we need to keep on encouraging ourselves not to have a quotable life with Jesus, but a real, authentic relationship. Yeah? I can hear a pin drop in here. I'm sure online you guys are just yelling in your bathrooms or wherever you are. Please, if you're in your bathroom right now, please stop it. I was going to call someone out by name, but I won't. Pastor James, already I did it, my mistake. He's not watching because he is with Pastor Benaiah at the moment, and Pastor Benaiah has one rule on holidays. We do not talk about church um, with his dad, so that's good. They have fun, and they fish, and they do those things. Boundaries are important. Okay, now let's get into some real mangled things. You ready? You ready? I need your, your affirmation. I won't do it without you. No, I will. I tricked you. Okay. Um, the first thing is this, when uh, I, I want to not um, fight points against each other, I'm going to give you two words, and I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong, but I'm saying if we are to rank them, one cannot go above the other, otherwise we get mangled up, okay? So the first one is this, service over servant. When we place service over being a servant, our Christianity begins to get mangled, We find ourselves in bitter and twisted and messed up places because we have got one thing above the other and it's not how it was supposed to work. When we get caught up in doing service rather than being a servant. Uh, We have scriptures and songs. I'm no longer a slave to something, something I'm child of God. Um, And we can... Grab a verse that was written to a very specific church for a specific time in a specific context and put that verse, um, that we are not slaves, that we are sons, and we can, um, we can grab it and we can hold on to it and be like, yes, I'm not a slave, I'm not a servant, I shouldn't do anything. I am a son, I sit back and I wait for my parents to die so I may receive the inheritance. Um, and we get a very messed up view of what a servant of Jesus is or what a slave, we'll go into the context of the actual scriptures, Because we grab that one verse rather than, I believe, 18 other references that Paul makes that says he is a servant. And the original context is a slave to Jesus. 
So what happens is we think I am a son and I do service rather than I am a servant and it outworks um, who I am. So I'll, I'll prove it in a second um, because I can. Um, so instead of actually what we're saying in those kind of references is not I'm not a servant, I'm a son. What we're saying is I'm not a servant, I'm a spoiled son. I'm a son that doesn't clean my room or do my chores. I'm a son, oh no, her dad's been called out because he had four kids. Too, too many. <laughs> have two kids. If you have more than two kids, I don't know what you're trying to prove to who. I don't know. We've got enough of you. Have two. Move on. Bring back China rules. One. If that offends you, please come and see me after the service. I would love to apologize face to face. Because if I say sorry now, you won't remember that. You'll just take the offense. So let me apologize face to face. Um, but a, a son that doesn't clean their room or do their chores, or when a guest comes over, they sit in their room listening to music or puts their headphones in at the dinner table or um, uses their phone at the dinner table. What we're talking about is not, I am a son that is passionate about service. What we're talking about when we compare those two things is um, not just an identity issue, but is a behavioral issue. We quote it like it's in a whole identity issue, but our hands are, are less dirty than a servant's. And we forget the actual honor it is to be a servant of the king, not simply a son that'll sit back. A son that struggles to serve uh, a strung, a strung, a strung, a strung, a Let's edit this out. A son that struggles to serve disconnects himself from his father. In the same way that the older son in the parable ends up weirdly on the outside of what God and what the father was doing, we end up that way too when we think that it was about what we were doing rather than being a servant. So Paul shows us something in Romans, Colossians, and Philippians, really important. It's going to appear on the screen. Um, Paul uh, identifies himself, others, and then himself again um, as a servant. Paul, a servant of Christ, Romans 1 verse 1. Um, Aphaphosis, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. There was a choice here in the word to use the word servant. And we are called to be a servant of Christ, not simply in service to Christ, but a servant of Christ. Okay, you ready? We're about to, we're about to get unmangled. You ready? Say, I'm ready to get unmangled. <laughs> okay, I'll do it then. Uh, you, you asked me to do it. Don't get it angry later. Um, um, one that serves is not necessarily a servant. However, a servant is marked by their service. Now, why does this matter? Why is the difference between putting service above servant an important thing? Because we result in a pretty mangled up thing. Um, when we place servant underneath service, we can get wrong beliefs, wrong behaviors, disappointment, and burnout. We get a belief system that I serve to help rather than I am a servant because that is who I am. So I serve, and, I, and then we'll get into a second, why we think that a quantity of service is a bad thing when it is not a bad thing. It is only a bad thing when we place service over servant. We arrive at a very, very messy place 
when we think that serving or volunteering or giving have negative connotations rather than the very thing that we are called to do. And then we stack up giving as a negative rather than giving as a necessity. We think we burn out because of how much we do. (sighs) We burn out because of long periods of working outside of our capacity. We do more, but we don't get any bigger. The reasons why we burn out are not because of the um, quantity of what we're doing. It's because of something else. And this is from someone. I've been in church for 15 years. I cannot remember a service that I haven't served in or come very intentionally to. There haven't been any services that I've come wandering in being like, what do I do? How do I be a part? How can I help someone? They have been for a very long time, I would say since I was 17 in our youth ministry, that I do not come to church to serve myself, but to serve the body. I can't believe I was invited to the party and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make this party better. There's not going to be some weird dad in the corner drinking punch and no one else there. I'm going to work hard at making the party a place where everyone can come and experience. Sorry if you're the weird dad sitting in the corner drinking punch. That's for you, Peter. Good. (laughs) What if your current capacity is not set? That the limit on the bottle... I was going to... Can I have that water for a second? I'm sorry, you're just chowing down on it. I didn't want to interrupt. This bottle says Australian natural spring water. Um, It also says made in China. I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, my gosh. False advertising. I'm calling a current affair. If you watch a current affair, my apologies. Um, And please tell me about what dishwashing liquid I should use because I feel like that's most of the episodes. Or chasing people coming out of court. I think is that another thing. Someone has a jacket on their head. We must chase them. Why did you take their money from the thing and Centrelink because you've got a big phone bill? I don't know what else happens on a current affair, but I feel like I've summed it up pretty well. Um, I don't watch the news because I'm too busy watching Law and Order. Um, This bottle says on it 600 mil. The reason why it says 600 mil is because that is the actual capacity of this bottle. The difference between this bottle and you and I, is we smash labels on our bottle saying that we will not grow and we will be set, but the label that is placed on us is to become more and more like Jesus, not more and more like our capacity or what we can or cannot do. So our issue of service, the way that I serve when I was 17, is much, 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 much smaller than how I serve now when I'm 30, and how I serve when I'm 30 will be much, 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 much smaller when I'm 40, 50, 60, and 70. I will not have the good old days. I will have the current days that I'm using everything in my hand to continue to be a servant of Jesus. All of this to say this on the screen, thank you, Troy Boy Moisoy. The issue is not the serving quantity, but rather the servant quality. That is a hard pill to swallow, but you have to take your medicine, church. The issue is not the serving quantity, but rather the servant quality. The word servant used here in Romans, Colossians, and Philippians is a word doulos. Can everyone say doulos? It means slave. It is one who sets aside their own rights. What Paul is saying about himself, about Timothy, about his friends 
is we are a group of people who have set aside our own rights for one thing and one thing only, Christ. I do not serve for people, I am a servant to Christ. Can I go deeper? And then we'll get into point number two, because these are getting heavier, not lighter. I'm, I'm wading you into the deep waters. Being a servant is Christianity. When we uh, balance up what we're doing compared to what someone else is doing, what we're doing against what we used to do, against what whatever, we, we forget. And, and what we're ultimately doing is, if I do too much, then who will look after me? And what that is saying is we are, we are not a servant because a servant has made the decision that my rights are no longer on the table. And what a servant knows, which someone that serves does not know, is a servant has set aside their own rights and what they are saying very loudly is, I trust God. I trust God more than is naturally acceptable. I trust God that it makes sense. I trust God more and my service comes out of no strings attached. No strings attached. And we need to make sure in our service it is not simply to help the cause but rather flows naturally out of us because our existence is to build others up. That revelation of trusting God is something that servants have that those that serve are very unfamiliar with. So mangled Christianity is when we place service above being a servant. I have, in time, and Pastor Benai doesn't listen back to our messages when I speak while he's away because he's, he's too busy getting back into other conversations we're having. I have uh, worked at this church for about six years and I have packed up my office approximately nine times to leave. Packed my bags. I am done, as my father said when I was growing up in church, Lord, protect me from the Pentecostals. Um... <laughs> And every single attempt at either leaving my office or over my journey, giving up on people has resulted in me examining my own heart and finding myself moving out of a service mentality rather than that of a servant. And if I'm constantly serving, I will forget how much has been provided for me and how much is being poured out to me as a slave to Christ. And as I set my own rights aside, I make a lot of room for God to provide what only he can do because my hands are full with the work that he's called me to do. Whew. Am I saying you can't serve too much? I don't know, but I'm saying it's not the main thing. The main thing is positioning your heart in a place that I do this for him, not for them because they will always need you. They will always have a question. They will always have an inquiry. They, people, love getting more out of you especially if you're a believer, because you have something from heaven. So even Christians will leech onto you to get truth and revelation and whatever it is and encouragement. And we need to be mindful that we are not serving them. We are servant of Him. Sound good? Number two is this. This is going to get heavy, but we're going to do it anyway. Humor to soften the blow. When we place experience over wisdom,
When we place experience over wisdom, we're going to look um, for a moment in the New Testament of what the Bible describes as wisdom, because what we describe as earthly experience is often equated to what we think wisdom is. When the Bible actually uh, describes wisdom as a gift, an impartation, something that is placed on, and almost exclusively, um, wisdom is placed on foolish things. Um, so we need to understand experience is valid to navigate the past and predict the future, but wisdom comes from heaven. We're going to get into this. Um, I said this to um, our Over 35s Connect um, about six weeks ago. Um, I now in church um, help oversee our Connect groups, get into Connect, lead a Connect, 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 Connect as a family, services are okay, Connect groups are better because in a Connect group, someone will look you in the eyes and disagree with you. Here, I don't know, you're not getting challenged as much. You're not doing life as well with me right now than you can be doing with your Connect group. But I said uh, in our Over 35s Connect, because I've learned this in my 30 short years of life, that two things come with years and experience, foolishness and wisdom. That at the age of 30, I have now, I can walk into a Friday night, having walked into Friday nights for 15 straight years, and because of my experience, be like, that won't work, that won't work, that's not how it should be done, that's not happening, that'll result in this, and what happens is I do not uh, enter wisdom, I have entered foolishness. I have thought, because I have seen it before, that I can predict what God wants to do in a moment. So foolishness comes with years, but also wisdom and experience can come with years. But they're not mutually exclusive. The reason why I know that is because of some of the most wise things that I've ever heard have been on altar calls from new Christians. That is not because the new Christian um, is anything, but being used to speak the wisdom of God. The most wise answers to some of the questions that challenge Christianity on why does God not answer prayer, for me, have been in new Christian courses, not in 35-minute theological YouTube videos of two white dudes arguing against each other. They have been in the foolish things of this world, the humble things of this world, the childish things of this world. So wisdom (laughs) is not our ability to look back and sound smart. Wisdom is not our ability to tell others what to do. Wisdom is the ability to make choices for yourself now and into the future. You do not see someone's wisdom by how many times they have grazed their knees or broken their teeth. You do not see someone's wisdom by how many times they have a good story of a good outcome. You see someone's wisdom by how they are calculating the current season and the next season. I'm going to prove it in a second. To always be right and to tell everyone what you should do is not a spiritual gift. Wisdom is shown in your plans. I'm not stopping. Wisdom is shown in your plans for your own future. The word wisdom often in the Bible is a word that I will pronounce this way, Sophia, because that is how it's pronounced in the original text. It is where we get the name Sophie from, and it means wisdom. So if you know anyone called Sophie, shout out to Sophie Heggie. Thank you for drawing me that picture when I was in year 11 and you drew a picture that said, I love you and drew a picture of me and gave it to my current girlfriend who is now my current wife. It's a confident thing when you draw a picture of a boy and give it to their girlfriend to give to them. That is a level of confidence. So shout out to Sophie. Um, No shame. Love who you love. Do your thing. Go, Sophie. Shoot your shot. Um, Wisdom here, the original text means wisdom, insight, or skill, or intelligence. Let's look at a very um, unquoted 
passage of Scripture when it comes to wisdom and probably the best definition of it. James 3, verse 13 to 18. It's going to appear on your screens, so please don't feel like you need a Bible at church. We've got you covered. Keep it in your nightstand. Also, what is a nightstand? Okay, verse 13. (laughs) And where where does it go during the day? (laughs) That's really funny. (coughs) Sorry, it's my cappuccino on almond that is making my throat like that. So, blame the coffee team. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. There is your definition on how to see if someone has wisdom and understanding. They are showing it in their good life. They are showing it in their humility, in their deeds. Wisdom is not the person in the movie that has been hiding in the forest for 150 years and says something that blows your mind and then you go back and have a Julia Roberts eat, pray, love moment. Wisdom is shown in how someone is navigating the current moment, not in how with foresight or looking back they can sound smarter than they were in the moment. How do I know that? Let's continue. But if you harbour bitter envy selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Please, church, let's remember when we're looking back, may there be no bitter envy or selfish ambition with how we are sharing because that is denying actual truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come from heaven. Here's James flexing it out. But it is earthly, that's mean, unspiritual, we're getting heavier, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. James here is painting us a picture that wisdom that is for the sake of the speaker is not wisdom at all. So what does it look like? Next slide. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It is impartial and it is sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. One of the words uh, for wisdom here in verse 16 or 17, the one that says, but the wisdom, is not only uh, Sophia, but it is Sophios, which means to form the best plans using the best means to execute them. That wisdom is our ability to navigate tomorrow well. So can I encourage us, church, never to place our experience over the fact that God wants to speak today prophetically to you and through you so that tomorrow is better than yesterday. And it's even better if you did yesterday better than you did and now you can look back and be like, I would do that differently. God wants to speak in a way that will supersede your highest and lowest experiences and give you something supernatural. There is an argument quite easily that not only is God uh, contradictory to giving wisdom to people with experience, uh, sorry, no, he he very much is. Um, 1 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 gives us a picture that God chooses foolish things of this world to shame the wise. The word foolish there is the word moros, it is the word that we get moron from. (laughs) That God chooses da morons of this world to close the mouth of the quote-unquote wise. 
The word moron or moronic is how it's defined in English terms. Is someone that is dull, without an edge, mentally inept, dull in understanding, nonsensical, lacking a grip on reality, and acting, though, as brainless. God chooses those things to close the mouth of every bit of worldly wisdom that James describes as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Can I encourage you, church, no matter how experienced you are, God wants to use you in a way that would make your best attempts look moronic. That no matter how educated you are, hashtag my wife, 15 years of uni, degrees coming out of everywhere, who knows? Let me say it this way. Let's not overvalue our story or experience and undervalue how wisdom comes from the most unusual places. Let me say it this way on the screen. The wisdom of God is making the choices He wants you to make, not making the choices others wish that they had made. Holy moly. If you're not taking notes, take a photo or use your photographic memory to remember that point. The wisdom of God is making choices He wants you to make, not making the choices others wish that they had made. Every parent, uh, I've been a parent now for five years. I've been a spiritual parent for 15 years. You don't get to count them, youth leaders, um, quoting their abilities to parent. Um, (coughs) um, Every parent has experience and wisdom from their kids, but every parent has never parented your kids. My parents gave it a go, parenting me. <laughs> it was a rough ride for everyone involved. Um, but no matter how well they parented me or how well they did not parent me, they have never parented Jeremiah and Ellie. So I must listen to experience, but I must never listen to it more than what he says. It's not either or, it's I'm placing them in order. And I first will seek wisdom and secondly, I will view experience. James is clear here. Show me your wisdom by your humble good deeds. Can I go a bit further? I'm just going to keep on just hammering down and then we'll get there, yeah? Um, check your wisdom. Check the fruit. Check how you're using your fruit. Let's put another little quote up on the screen. No matter how frequently or eloquently or loudly you speak, your actions will always be weightier, deeper, and louder. Your actions show your wisdom. I've learned to trust God. Oh, can you please pray because I don't have enough finance this week. Okay, which one? Did you learn to trust God or are your actions in your current situations showing the lack of wisdom? Because yes, he provided before, before you before and that's a really nice story. But unless it has normalized something in your heart, you may have missed why he provided. He didn't miss so that you had provision. Uh, sorry, he didn't provide so you had provision. He provided so that you understood that he was your provider. And then you gain wisdom. Godly wisdom is from God, not from this world. Bonus scripture time. Everyone say, bonus scripture. <laughs> Horrible. Youth pastor to the day I die because... If Pastor Manai has taught me anything, adults are youth in older bodies. You're still peer pressure. None of you sung in church today. Peer pressure. You all got peer pressure to not do it. No, I'm joking. That's not why you didn't do it. Um, 
Uh, next week, we don't only have a COVID table. We're going to have tables for all of the diseases. Um, so if you have any of them, you can, no, that's not true. Okay. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 26 verse, says, uh, verse 12 says this, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Do you see a person who is wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. This scripture is showing us that pride is something that can come quite quickly when we think that we know everything. When pride enters and takes root, we can find a quite mangled form of ignorance. Let's talk about my favorite word of the week, ignorance. Let it appear on the screen. Ignorance of your ignorance results in overconfidence. Ignorance of your ignorance results in overconfidence. If anyone here has ever had a teenage child, you understand this. They are not aware of how much they do not know, and it results in an overconfidence. Perhaps you ask them to do the dishes, and they scream back, Mom, it's not my fault you chose porcelain over plastic. We should be disposing these things. To wash up is a waste of all of our time. No one's ever thought that through? No, just me. Um, we do not know how much we do not know unless we're willing to have a humble and open conversation and heart to uncover our ignorance. Have you ever um, found yourself getting medical advice off a website? Or getting medical advice off someone that never went to university for medicine? If you want to give me medical advice, but you didn't go to uni for 12 years and pay roughly $350,000, you can keep your medical advice. I don't care how many YouTube videos you've watched. I don't care how many times you've been sick. And I don't care what happened when you rub that ointment on that part of your body and suddenly you're all fine. Keep it to yourself. We are so unaware of our own ignorance. And if we are so unaware of it, it results in a very very nasty thing, overconfidence. Where a child tells a parent how to parent or a student tells a teacher how to teach, we are so ignorant of our ignorance. Um, If you grew up um, around drug dealers or in a crack den, another way of describing it is don't get high on your own supply. That term, um, don't get high on your own supply, means two things. Um, Don't get high on your own supply because um, you'll be unable to sell your product because you'll use too much of it. And secondly, don't get high on your own supply because you'll be too inebriated to do your job. And what happens when we flex our ignorance, what we are doing is we are getting high on our own supply of knowledge and we don't realize how dumb we sound. Let me use a church example. I've had people that have never preached before try and teach me how to preach. And you are so ignorant of your ignorance. The people that I'm going to learn to preach off are people that have two things, experience and wisdom. I'm taking both of them. Not in that order, but I'm taking both of them. If you grew up, uh, let's go, next scripture, yeah? We'll get into point number three, because point number three is where the hammer really drops. Ephesians 4 verse 18 says, They are darkened in their own understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. Ultimately, ignorance takes root due to the hardening of our heart, and the hardening of our heart occurs when history and head has now superseded his heart. Our hearts get hardened when our history and our head 
supersedes us being open to his heart. And that results in hesitation, that results in being afraid. Your history in your head was never supposed to be your compass. Your history of what did or did not work was never supposed to be your compass. Your history simply shows you what did or did not happen. It can estimate, it can guess at what the future is, but the best person that's guessing the future is the person that is writing it. I much rather ask him than ask my history. And your head simply messes up every interaction and every word you've had into your worldview and then crushes out some kind of action or inaction out of your mouth and your life. So your head is nice, your history is good, but church, let's always move our ignorance to the side, soften our hearts to Him and allow wisdom to flow. Mangled Christianity is when our experience gets placed above wisdom. Home stretch, baby. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, Pastor Nat, can you get up here? Worship team, can you get up here? It's about to go down. Number three is this, miracles over love. Okay, I know I'm in a Pentecostal church, but please, keep your stones in your stone satchel right now. Your fanny pack. I don't know where you keep your stones. This is where Mangle can take on a whole new level of ineffective grossness. I've heard this in church life before, and I haven't heard it recently, so don't feel like I'm talking about you. If you ever feel like I'm talking about you, you'll know because I'll say your name. Like I'll be like, Peter, talking about you. Like It'll be pretty clear that I'm talking about you. I'm not trying to do some sneaky thing under the surface. I'm extremely confrontational. If I don't want to be friends with you on Facebook, I'll send you a message first, just letting you know that I'm about to defriend you. I really want there to be clear communication. Um, I'm very assertive. It's astonishing how assertive I am. Passive-aggressive, not me. But I've heard in church life before statements and thoughts being like, oh, was in town, I was at the shops and saw this person and God was like, go pray for them. And I was like, God, I don't want to. There's a sick person over there and God was like, go pray for them. And I was like, no, I don't want to pray for them. And then we like argued and we went back, back to the car. Back to the car. And Jono, that was right on cue. Thank you. Um, Jono, just let me know. I've got five minutes left. Um, I wish I softened it more in that moment. I wish it was like one of those moments where you're like, there's a basket of kittens. Let's calm the service down. Right in that moment. God wants to whisper to you this morning. And then a bang! That would be great. Um, he whispers sometimes. Not very often, but he does. And the whole thing of like, I don't want to do it. And I wrestled and I got in my car and I drove home and I cooked dinner. And then God was like, you should have done it. And I got back in my car and I drove back there. And they were still there, sitting there in Coles, trying to pay for their food. And I don't know, that story maybe not happens. It goes for like, 10 days later, I went back and they were still... Um, that's so gross and mangled. And it's not gross and mangled because we're all human and we want whatever. It's so gross and mangled that we think that God wants the miracle rather than he wants our heart to want the miracle because we love them. If, if God places in your heart to do something and you're going to fight with God about it, just fight with God about it. Don't do it if there isn't love in it. Because it is no more disobedient not doing it than doing it without love. 
it's when we place miracles above love, it's when we, we place God's hand and what he does above the fact that he wants us to see him. And the same issue with the woman with the issue of blood that touches the garment and gets the miracle. But Jesus is like, where is she? Where is she? I want her to see me. And then he speaks to her and breaks off the thing that was much, much more important than her issue of blood that sent her broke because doctors were manipulative. It was the fact that she needed to see God's face. God is much more interested in placing love above outward deeds and miracles every day of the week. Let me prove it to you. Miracles misunderstood can lead to really just missing the point of everything. The point is not a perfect world. The point is to have a touch from a perfect God. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 to 3 is the second best scripture on love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 is the tenth best scripture on love. (laughs) I'm ranking them all now because I'm just in the mood of over things, yeah. (laughs) It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, do not have love. How I said that, that was amazing. Do not have love. Everyone say, do not have love. Do not have love. That's how I had two kids, that voice. It's my romantic voice. Hello, Alex. We are having a love in our hearts for each other. Let's have the babies. Sorry if you're Italian and that attempt offended you. Please come after the service. I would love to apologize face to face. But do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Go on. Where did that stick come from? He had nothing and then just... He has like a Xena, like knife carrier. He kind of looked like Xena. Okay, we won't go there, but it's fine. Sorry for ring up Xena in church. I know she's a temptress or whatever. Um, if, I have <coughs> if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Four things. Gong. Our life is a gong. Our life is a clanging symbol. That I am nothing and I gain nothing. And then these things of tongues, prophecy, fathom mysteries, knowledge, faith, giving my possessions or giving my body over is referencing 1 Corinthians 12 where it lifts all of the gifts. And it's saying here that gifts without love aren't a good try. They are nothing. Let's land the plane this morning. Let us consider what is most miraculous about Jesus' ministry. He did many miracles, and it wasn't even uncommon for miracles to occur in first century Jerusalem. It was not an uncommon thing for that to happen. It was even so not uncommon that when he did miracles, people's responses, it wasn't even uncommon for humans, let alone God followers, because the, the thing that happens when he does miracles is often the Pharisees accuse him of having all of this power because he's friends with the devil. In other words, this is a common thing that happens. It doesn't mean he's a God follower. Miracles happen. The issue about Jesus' miraculous life, the, the main important thing, is not any of the deeds that he did. Aren't all the cool stories where like Jesus walked on water, said, watch me walk on water, and none of us walk on water. 
the miraculous thing was never the little experience or the little function or the little outworking of the thing. It was what preceded it. Because, yeah, Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, but what makes Jesus unique is he wept before that. Is that he lost a friend and his love moved him to miraculous works. The issue with the woman of the issue of blood is not that she was healed. The issue is his love for her to have a conversation. Yes, Jesus fed the 5,000 and healed them. But the verses show us that he was moved with compassion. And that's why he did it. Jesus did some miraculous things, but the, the most powerful miraculous thing was how he loved it wasn't that he spoke to the lady with the well and said this and knew about how many partners she had or this or that. It's that he moved towards her because he cared, despite what culture said. Again and again and again, the miraculous things that either Luke lists, because Luke's a doctor and he loves listing miracles, or John or Matthew or Mark, these miracles are nothing compared to the love that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that, None should perish, but all should have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. The miraculous thing that we are called to do is not just place miracles on a pedestal. Once I see someone healed, then that's something. Miracles outside of love are not miraculous or wonderful at all. But founded in the heart of a loving Father moving toward the broken world becomes uniquely different in our Christianity. And it demangles it from God is going to solve all of your problems. Don't listen to Koshi anymore because God will give you better financial advice. It's not even that he overcame the grave. Resurrections were not uncommon. How do we know that? Lazarus was already resurrected in his crew. It's like he's the first person that I went down with. The miraculous thing is he's had it hanging on the cross. He says, forgive them. It's the 536 references of love in the Bible compared to the 16 ones on hell. Like it is a significant topic. It is a significant, important thing. It is a word that God uses to describe himself. Jesus' miracles miraculous, but they meant something because of the love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 and 3 isn't telling us not to act. It is telling us to move in all things in love that we make a phone call of someone that's not at church in love, that we pray in love, that we step out of the boat in love, that we go for a healing in love, that we serve in love, that we speak in love, that we parent in love, that we work in love, that we dream in love, that we hold ourselves accountable in love, that we, we love, 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 love. <laughs> Don't be fooled. A miracle or a gift or an action without love is as powerful as no miracle at all. Because I've seen people healed of cancer, but never saw his face. And his face is the fight that we're fighting. We're not fighting to make the world perfect. We're fighting to restore people to a perfect God. We're not fighting the latest hashtag and what we should stand on or stand against. It doesn't matter. What we're fighting is an eternal fight as Christians. We're trying to restore people to him long term. A miracle's bad, no, but they're not over love.
and they find a perfect, beautiful place. Our house becomes a house of miracles, not because we want more miracles, but because we just want people to experience the ways of God and his loving ways towards us. That he heals us when we don't deserve it, that he saves us while we were still, like he moves, he cares. That we have a real beating heart for our city. Not just we need to fix all of them and do enough good deeds to get them over a line. Mangled Christianity is when our deeds get placed above his love. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you would like to know more about our church, please go to celebrationchurch.com.au.